Matthew 15. Um, Let's pray to God that he will open our hearts for the word that we're going to read. Heavenly Father, we pray that um, you will give us a listening ear and an open heart to what you have to say to us um, in this passage of scripture. Lord, we pray for Carl that um, you'll grant him your spirit to to lead us through this and explain it to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Matthew 15, verse 29. Jesus feeds the 4,000. Jesus left there and went along the Sea of Galilee. Then he went up on a mountainside and sat down. Great crowds came to him, bringing the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute and many others and laid them at his feet and he healed them. The people were amazed when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled made well, the lame walking and the blind seeing and they praised the God of Israel. Jesus called his disciples to him and said, Have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. I do not want to send them away hungry or they may collapse on the way. His disciples answered, Where could we get enough bread in this remote place to feed such a crowd? How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied, and a few small fish. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. Then he took the seven loaves and the fish And when he had given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples and they in turn to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was 4,000 besides women and children. After Jesus had sent the crowd away, he got into the boat and went to the vicinity of Magadan. The Pharisees and Sadducees came to Jesus and tested him by asking to show them a sign from heaven. He replied, When evening comes, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, today it will be stormy, for the sky is red and overcast. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation looks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. Jesus then left them and went away. When they went across the lake, the disciples forgot to take bread. Be careful, Jesus said to them. Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They discussed this among themselves and said, It is because we didn't bring any bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked, You of little faith, why are you talking among yourselves about having no bread? Do you still not understand? Don't you remember the five loaves for the five thousand and how many basketfuls you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the four thousand and how many basketfuls you gathered? How is it you don't understand that I was not talking to you about bread? but be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he was not telling them to guard against the yeast used in bread, but against the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Thanks, Carl. Well, it's uh, great to see you all this morning. Uh, 
If you're worried that this sermon is uh, about bread uh, and about yeast and about baking, uh, don't worry, it's okay. It, it's, it's about Jesus and we'll get there in the end. But uh, I'm, a bit of a, I'm a bit of a fan of bread. Uh, I don't know about you. I was, I was sitting down yesterday, I was thinking how much bread I eat. Uh, actually, I had a conversation with someone last Sunday as well about uh, how much bread they eat. It's amazing, isn't it, uh, how much uh, bread we still eat, even thousands of years after these days in which uh, Jesus lived. Well, bread is uh, a bit of a theme in this part of Matthew's Gospel. You might have picked that up. Uh, there's the feeding of the 4,000. If you were visiting uh, here, or if you were here last week, you might remember that uh, there was that Canaanite woman who uh, just wanted a crumb, a crumb from Jesus' table. Uh, and earlier in uh, the Gospel, just a chapter or so ago, Jesus fed 5,000 other people. So bread uh, is a big theme uh, in this part of the Gospel of Matthew. And here in uh, the section that Ed just read for us, Jesus feeds 4,000 people. Uh, He feeds uh, these people, not because it's a neat trick, but because he's making a profound statement about who he is. Now for people uh, who didn't know the Old Testament... Uh, the first half of the Bible, for people who didn't know the Old Testament well, what Jesus was doing by feeding four or 5,000 people uh, probably would have been lost on them. But for people like the Jews who, who knew the Old Testament well, what Jesus was doing would have had a profound impact. You see, there are a number of times in the history of the world, in the history of God's people, when God fed his people miraculously. Uh, if you look in the, the book of Kings, there are two miracles uh, of feeding. Through the prophet Elijah, God provides a jar of flour and a jar of oil for a widow uh, and her son so that they wouldn't run out of food. Uh, it's, a, it's a never-ending supply of oil uh, and flour for the whole period uh, that there was a drought at that time. Also, uh, in the book of Two Kings, the prophet Elijah, uh, Elisha uh, is used by God to feed over a hundred men miraculously uh, from loaves of bread. But Jesus' uh, miracle here in uh, chapter 15 and the miracle back in chapter 14 far outstrip either of those two miracles in terms of uh, their extent. The same God stands behind all three miracles, behind Elijah and Elisha and behind uh, the miracle of Jesus But Jesus' miracle is even bolder, even more comprehensive. But again, if you go back to the Old Testament, there's an even more extravagant uh, food miracle uh, in the history of God's people. And that was when God's people were in the desert. Uh, They'd been redeemed from Egypt. They were slaves in in Egypt. They were redeemed from Egypt and brought out. uh, And they were in the desert and they didn't have anything to eat. And so God provided for them for 40 years uh, manna from heaven. Manna was, uh, was a kind of food. Uh, no one's exactly sure what it was. But, uh, but God provided for them miraculously for 40 years. And significantly back in chapter 14, if you flick back to, to chapter 14, where Jesus uh, fed the 5,000, in verse 13 we read, that Jesus, when Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place or literally a deserted place or a wilderness or a desert. Again, in verse 15, the disciples emphasise the remoteness of where Jesus 
had gone to. This is a remote place, they say, and it's already getting late. And it's in that deserted place, it's in that wilderness, it's in that remote locality that Jesus feeds uh, all these people. Just as God miraculously provided for people in the desert all those years ago, so now God in Jesus Christ was providing for his people in the desert again. Jesus, in other words, is making a statement that he is God come in the flesh providing for his people. Here's how Jesus describes the same event uh, in John 5. I tell you the truth, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. I remember when uh, Graham and Linda first came back from, uh, their, from their first trip to South Sudan, their exploratory trip, I think it was about 18 months ago now. I remember them saying that uh, in South Sudan the staple diet is rice and I think it was kidney beans or something like that, which was unfortunate because uh, one of the kids didn't like kidney beans, I think. But I remember being struck by the idea of a staple food. You know, we don't have, we, I mean, we don't really have staple foods uh, in the West and in Australia like we did in the past. In the past it might have been potatoes, you know, the thing that everybody ate all the time. Uh, in Asia it's rice, it's been rice for a long time and, and it's very much rice still. But we don't, uh, we don't have those staple foods. But in Jesus' day the staple food was bread and you'd eat it all the time. You'd eat it morning, you'd eat it in the middle of the day, you'd eat it at night. You'd live off the stuff. And Jesus is saying to these people, he is their staple food. He's their source of life. He's saying, you need me. They need Jesus in the morning. They need Jesus in the middle of the day. They need Jesus at night. They need him every moment of their lives. Jesus is the source of life. 24 hours a day, seven days a week. That's what Jesus is saying when he feeds these people. He's not saying, look at me, I can do great things. He's saying, you need me, I am the bread of life. Here's a great prayer to pray, I think, when you don't know what else to pray. I don't know if you've ever been in that situation before when you feel the need to pray but you don't know what to ask for. Your life is falling to pieces and, and you don't know which way is up and what to say. Here's a great prayer, God give me Jesus because that's what we need. We need Jesus, the bread of life, who came down from heaven. So why did Jesus do this same miracle twice? Why did he feed 4,000 people, uh, 5,000 people once, back in chapter 14, and, and then 4,000 people uh, here in the passage that we read? Was it just to be doubly impressive? Now the reason is because there are two different audiences. Uh, in the first uh, example, in the feeding of the 5,000, the, the audience, the, the people who received the food were largely Jewish people. Uh, they were the people who, who would have understood the significance, the deep significance of what Jesus was doing. But here in the feeding of the 4,000, that's not the case. In the feeding of the 4,000, the people seem to be uh, non-Jews or what the Bible often calls 
Gentiles, that is people who didn't follow the Old Testament. Uh, they believed in all kinds of other gods. They, perhaps some of them were atheists, perhaps some of them were agnostics, they didn't know whether God existed or not. Perhaps some of them believed in vague uh, ideas of spirituality. But after seeing what Jesus did, look what they say in verse 31 of chapter 15. Uh, well, what they did, they praised the God of Israel. That is, they could see through what Jesus had done that, God had, that Jesus had come from God. Not just any God. They didn't just praise Jesus as a God but they praised Jesus and they praised the God of Israel. They praised the God who'd made himself known to the people of Israel in the past. Why do the same miracle twice? Because Jesus was making a point and his point was that he didn't come just to feed one sector of humanity, just to feed one race or one people group, but he came to feed everyone as the bread of life. Whether those people have come from a Christian background or not, whether they've come from a good home or not, or a good family or not, whether they've had a good past or not, it doesn't matter. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. The great thing about bread, I suppose, is that it's so common. It's not caviar, you know, it's not the food of kings, it's not the food of rich people. It's not the food of the elite. No, bread is for everyone. I recently uh, heard someone say, I don't know who said it. Uh, For the life of me, I can't remember who said it. But they made the point, they were were someone who worked uh, in social work, I think, uh, and they said that in dealing with with the poor uh, and, and so on, they said they exclude themselves as much as we exclude them. That's a really interesting point. They exclude themselves as much as we exclude them. They, the point was this. They also think they're not worthy. And isn't that the case so often in coming to Jesus? People exclude themselves, don't they, in their own minds. We say to ourselves, yes, Jesus is a, welcomes everyone. Except, except for me. No, but Jesus has gone to great lengths to show that he welcomes everyone who comes to him. He did it by doing the same miracle twice, both for his own people and for those who had no idea who he was. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Come to me, receive me, trust me, follow me and you'll live. So, so Jesus' miracle of providing uh, food in these miraculous ways uh, demonstrates who he is. He's, he's God come in the flesh to give life to those who flee to him. Uh, and yet uh, the religious leaders of Jesus' day come to Jesus in the next section at the beginning of chapter 16 and they ask for Jesus to do a miraculous sign. It's amazing, isn't it? Jesus has just fed 4,000 people and the religious leaders come to him and say, uh, is there something that you could do just to give us a little bit more confidence to know that you're, uh, who, that you're sent from heaven? And Jesus basically says to them, you don't need another sign 
You need to learn to interpret the ones that you've got, the ones that you've already seen. They could understand some signs from heaven, that is, they could understand the weather. Apparently, uh, as a rule of thumb, uh, if you get a fiery red sky at night, uh, it means that you're likely to have a clear night. Uh, I, can see, uh, I can see Leanne nodding. <laughs> She's the weather expert. Uh, uh, I had to look it up. <laughs> Actually, I spent a ridiculous amount of time looking it up, would you believe? But uh, anyway, I had a great time. Uh, there was all kinds of formulas and uh, it was... Uh, Yes, it was great. But uh, apparently it's true. It is true uh, to a large degree that if you get a fiery red sky at night, you're going to have a clear night. And if you get a fiery red sky in the morning, uh, it means that you're going to uh, have a stormy day. And Jesus says to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, he says, you guys can, can see that. You know that. You can look at the heavens and you can know that that's true. You can interpret the, time, the signs uh, of, the, of the heavens, of the weather, but you can't interpret the signs of the times. That is, you can't interpret the very things that I am doing in front of you now. They could, tell what the, they could read what the sky was telling them about the weather, but they couldn't read what Jesus was doing before their very eyes. It's one thing, isn't it, I suppose, if someone feeds one person miraculously. I mean, that would be quite an achievement, I suppose. I think I'd be quite impressed if I saw someone feed one person miraculously. But to feed thousands of people in one go is extraordinary, isn't it? Who could do that except God himself? More than that, a miracle of feeding one person is easy to claim, isn't it? It's easy to claim but hard to disprove because there's only one witness. But a miracle of feeding thousands is hard to claim because there's so many witnesses and it's easy to disprove because these stories about Jesus were already beginning to be told and retold and written down in Jesus' day in the, in the lifetime of the people who supposedly had experienced these things. All it would have taken to disprove would have been a relatively small number of the people who were there saying, no, that's rubbish, that never happened. No, to claim to feed thousands of people is actually hard to prove and hard to do. More than that, Jesus wasn't just asking these people to interpret what he was doing without any context. He was asking people to interpret his miracles against the background of the Old Testament. We've already seen that, how God was a God who had fed his people in the desert in the past and Jesus was doing the very same thing again. See, what if a person came along today and claimed to feed 5,000 people? How would we know that that person was or wasn't the Messiah sent from God. You'd know because whatever miraculous things they'd claimed to have done wouldn't match up with the Old Testament. They wouldn't match up with who God had already revealed himself to be in the past. You see, it's not that we need more signs. We just need to see the signs that God has already given us and to see them more clearly. We need to see more clearly what God has revealed about himself in the Bible. We need to examine and explore and test those things and to reason them out. We need to examine the claims that Jesus 
disciples made about what Jesus did. The people who, uh, who saw Jesus, who lived with Jesus, they wrote down what they saw and they left it for us in the Bible for us to read and for us to examine and for us to see. We don't need new revelations from God. We don't need new miraculous works from God. We don't need to see more of God's power. We just need to see the signs that God has already given and to see them more clearly. As it turns out, Jesus said to the Pharisees that there would be one more sign, what he calls the sign of Jonah. And as Jesus explains uh, already in the Gospel of Matthew, the sign of Jonah is that just as Jonah was in the belly of a great fish for three days and three nights, so Jesus will be buried in the heart of the earth and rise from the dead. In other words, what Jesus is saying is that the great sign, the great sign par excellence of who he is, that he's sent from God, that he's the source of life for all humanity, the great sign that demonstrates that more than anything else is Jesus' death and burial and resurrection. It's not that we need more signs, we just need to see the signs that God has already given and to see them more clearly. And in fact, it's not just the things in the Bible that we need to see more clearly, it's also the things in the world. God has manifested himself in profound ways in our world. I often think of the astronomers who spend their lives gazing out at the stars or gazing out at computer screen readouts of things about stars it's not quite as exciting, is it? But, but I think of those astronomers who spend their life studying the stars and I think they see these amazing things, don't they? They see amazing things about the universe. They, they deal with the complexities of a universe which is expanding and accelerating in its expansion. They, they, they see amazing things about black holes and stars which explode and, and all kinds of things. They see the marvels of the universe but they can't see that God has made it. I was struck recently in our growth group we watched uh, a video by Don Carson, Carson again. But anyway, but in that, in that talk he, was, he made an observation. He said it's hard, it's, it's hard when you're reading some of these writers who aren't Christians, these scientists, and they describe the universe or they describe biology or they describe mathematics or whatever it might be. And, and as you're reading them it's, it's hard not to get the sense that what they write and how they write comes close to worship. And it's true, it's, it's amazing when you read them that they just adore and admire the creation and yet they cannot see the creator behind it. We don't need more signs, we just need to see the signs which God has given us more clearly. Or I think of the fact that our world, as broken as it is, is still a world of incredible love. Our world is full of love, isn't it? And people doing remarkable things because of love. Love is a powerful and a wonderful and a beautiful thing. It's a gift from God. And to say that love is just an evolutionary response. Survival of the fittest is to make love empty and nothing. But love isn't empty and nothing. It's beautiful and wonderful because it comes from a God who is a Trinitarian God, a God who is one God and three persons, a God who loves in himself, in community. 
God has made us in his image to love because he is love and he first loved us. You see, the world is full of signs, full of indications, pointing to God, revealing God and we don't need more of them. We just need to think more carefully and more clearly about the ones that God has already given us. So Jesus demonstrates who he is through this profound miracle of feeding people. He is the bread of life, the source of life, come from heaven to our earth. The Pharisees want more evidence, but no evidence is ever enough for people like the Pharisees. And yet this whole kind of scene finishes with Jesus issuing a warning to his disciples in verse 6. Be careful, he says, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Well, the disciples, as ever, don't understand what Jesus is talking about. They think he's talking about the fact that they've forgotten to take bread with them on their trip. Uh, Possibly a little bit foolish, given uh, how often they've been without bread in the past few days. You'd think uh, they'd be a little bit more prepared by now. But they're not. Uh, And yet Jesus asks them uh, this this question. He says to them, you of little faith, why are you talking about bread? We might think that the, uh, the answer to that question is obvious. That is, the reason that they were talking about bread is because they didn't understand Jesus' cryptic metaphor. I mean, surely that makes sense, uh, that they hadn't understood and so that's why they're talking about bread. But Jesus isn't so concerned about them not understanding. What he's more concerned about is the, the fact that they still don't trust him. So look at what Jesus says next. He says, don't you remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many basketfuls you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000? And how many basketfuls you gathered? How is it you don't understand that I was not talking to you about bread? You see, they're still worried about bread after Jesus has fed 5,000 people on one occasion and 4,000 people on another occasion. The disciples' concern about bread shows that they're in danger of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Why are they in danger? What was the Uh, Pharisees and the Sadducees' problem, well, their problem, as we've already seen, is that they didn't believe in Jesus. They didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah sent from God, the bread of life who meets all our needs. What were the disciples in danger of? They are in danger of forgetting that Jesus was the Messiah sent from God, walking among them. They are in danger of forgetting that he was the bread of life who could meet all their needs. In other words, the disciples were in danger from the unbelief and the scepticism of the Pharisees. Jesus says that their scepticism and their unbelief, far from being inert and harmless, is actually like yeast. It spreads and infects everything that it comes into contact with. I, um, uh, when I was on holidays, uh, one of the great treats of uh, going to visit my family on holidays is that my sister make uh, my sister makes pizzas. Uh, and it's always a bit of a bit of an affair. We go over there and she makes the uh, the dough the pizza dough herself, uh, you know. And it's I guess it's, I guess she puts yeast in. I didn't actually check, but um, 
But you know, she makes it and then she leaves it in the bowl to rise for, for however long and you come back and it's like tripled in size or something. You know, it's, it's enormous. The difference that yeast, or the effect that yeast has uh, on the bread, on the dough is, is incredible. And Jesus is saying it's like that with the unbelief and the scepticism of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. It's not just harmless, it's not just, oh, oh, they don't believe in Jesus. He's saying, no, actually, it makes a difference. It affects you, it grows. Their scepticism saps our faith. Not because their doubts are plausible or true, but because they're so persistent, they're so relentless, they're so unavoidable. For instance, the rationalism of the 19th century, that is the idea that everything kind of stems from reason and whatnot, the rationalism of the 19th century led to the view that miracles couldn't happen. That thinking is 200 years old and it still undermines the faith of Christians and the faith of people today. It undermines our faith because we find the very idea of God doing a miracle embarrassing. Not just the idea of God doing a miracle today, we find the idea of God having ever done miracles a bit embarrassing. And what's the result? The result is that we don't talk about them. When was the last time you said to somebody in the street, did you know that Jesus fed 5,000 people miraculously? Now we don't We don't mention it. Why don't we mention the miracles that Jesus has done in the Bible? It's because we think they're a little bit awkward. Because the unbelief and the scepticism of our world has sapped our faith. Watching out for the uh, scepticism and unbelief of people around us might sound to some people a bit like closed-mindedness. It might sound a bit... Uh, Like Jesus is saying, don't listen to anyone who ever asks the question because, uh, you know, it might be dangerous. But that's not the point. Jesus isn't saying, don't ask questions. In Acts, the, uh, the Berean Christians were commended for testing to see whether everything that Paul said was true. Paul was saying that Jesus was the Christ and the Bereans didn't just believe him. They examined it to see whether the evidence stood up and they were commended for it, for not being led by the nose. Now Jesus' point is rather that we need to be aware of how unbelief slowly saps our faith. He's not opposing rational investigation. He's opposing the slow leakage of faith that happens unconsciously, even irrationally, as we live in an environment of unbelief and scepticism. But the unbelief and scepticism of people around us doesn't necessarily sap our faith in the sense that it turns us into unbelievers, though that's a possibility. But the slow erosion of our faith uh, that comes about through this relentless uh, onslaught of the people living around us can so discourage us that we become ineffective. Uh, You might remember a month or so ago I, I recommended a talk uh, a few talks on Revelation by a guy called Peter Adam. Uh, I don't know how many people talk, uh, listened to those talks. I know a few growth groups did. But in that sermon he talked about the shared sins of churches. And one of the sins that he mentioned I thought was so interesting. 
He talked about a church in which the distrust of God is normal. That is a church in which people have stopped believing God, not in the big sense, believing God for salvation, but in the little senses of everyday life. A church in which the distrust of God is normal. And I wonder whether that might describe us. I don't, I don't actually know. I'm not saying it does. But I think it's an interesting question, isn't it? It's an interesting question to ask, are we a church who has just become used to not trusting God? Are we a church characterised by bold faith in God? Or are we a church where unbelief and distrust of God reigns? You might like to think about that. You might like to think about what a church, uh, what people in a church of bold faith would look like. And you might like to think about what people in a church of open distrust of God might look like as well. By feeding these uh, thousands of people on two occasions, Jesus was making a bold statement. He was making a statement that he is the Son of God sent from heaven to bring life. Not just life once off, I made a decision to trust in Christ years ago, but actually that Jesus is the source of life every day, that we need to trust him and live from him every moment of our lives, every day. We don't need more proof that that's who Jesus is. We just need to believe it and to keep believing it every day more and more. Let me pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, thank you that uh, you sent Jesus from with you into our world to be the source of life for us. Lord, uh, we confess that uh, often in our lives it feels as though uh, things are going badly. Uh, it feels like we're living in a desert, in a wilderness. Thank you that you are a God who feeds people who are wandering in wilderness places. And Lord, we ask that every one of us would come to Jesus to receive from him the food of life, of spiritual life, of new life in him. That we'd come to Jesus to receive the resurrection life which he won for us on the cross. Lord, we pray that you'd help us to test these things, to examine them, to reason about them, to see the signs that you've given us, that you've left us with and help us to see clearly and to see truly that Jesus is who he really said he is. And Lord, we pray that as we hold on to that truth, we ask that we wouldn't, our faith wouldn't be sapped by the unbelief of those around us, but that you would strengthen our faith uh, and embolden us to be a church of deep and abiding trust in you in every uh, facet of our lives, in every sector 
of of our lives. Lord, we pray that we would trust you and feast on your great Son, Jesus Christ. We ask it in his name. Amen.